everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline here at the show. We interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, my guest is Mitchell Julis. He is the co-founder and co-chairman of Canyon Partners, a multi-strategy hedge fund uh, that used to be headquartered in Los Angeles, but they just moved to Dallas, Texas, and it is one of the largest and best performing hedge funds in the world. Uh, if you listen to the end of our podcast or visit our website, you'll see that Policy Punchline is funded by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. And the center was created by Mr. Julius and named in honor of his father and mother. So uh, I, I have to say that I started Princeton as a freshman, uh, going to all those public talks and events given by the Julius Rabinowitz Center, the JRC, and then eventually started the podcast. And now uh, we're having Mitch on the show. So everything is coming in full circle here. So Mitch, thank you so much uh, for being here today. It's a real pleasure, and I want to thank you, Tiger, because, um, I mean, I think what you've done in creating uh, the, uh, the, the policy uh, capture, you know, in those documents and in, in, um, uh, the publication and now this podcast really makes uh, it accessible. You show it up there so that everybody knows. I mean, Absolutely. Gotta, we have our two books support here. the <laughs> brand, uh, Policy Punchline. Um, I mean, really what you're doing is making accessible uh, a lot of the great content that otherwise would not necessarily be uh, available uh, because for people who haven't uh, had the opportunity to visit, um, to go to one of the uh, conferences or actually to listen to them. I know that, um, um, that uh, you know, COVID it's been more restricted, more people have been using the online uh, platform. So I, you know, I think over time, I think one, of, if there's a benefit of COVID, it'll be the fact that, uh, I think more people will probably catch on to what you've created and the, uh, the value of the material at the center. So, so Mitch, I guess it might be nice to start off the interview, by giving our listeners a bit of background on what Kenyan partners do and what credit investing is, who you are, uh, what are some of kinds of the investment opportunities you pursue and focus at your firm? And maybe we can take it from there. Sure. So essentially, Canyon is an alternative asset manager. And what that means that is that we try to avoid uh, the kinds of uh, investments, whether it's equity, but particularly in, in, in debt credit, that are uh, commoditized. Uh, we focus on the more complex situations and, and we pursue those situations from a, from a variety of perspectives, but in, uh, across a variety of platforms. So our, our flagship products are the hedge fund uh, structure um, and uh, managed accounts that are congruent with some of the mandates of those hedge funds. And then in addition, we have uh, some locked up funds that focus on particular areas. So for right now, we have um, uh, the Canyon Distressed Opportunity Fund, which is a hybrid structure. It's kind of like a private equity fund, but doesn't have the duration of a private equity fund, nor does it have the mandate to, you know, to own necessarily and control companies. What it does have the mandate to do is, is to invest in a locked up structure over a certain defined period of time. And then there's a wind down. 
And that what that structure does, as opposed to hedge fund, hedge fund is it gives you more uh, structural staying power and allows you to um, have a greater duration to work out situations and focus on those situations. Yeah, and then we have a CLO structure, which is, um, um, which is funded by uh, what is uh, CLO equity um, funds that we have raised that seed these CLOs. And CLOs are collateralized loan obligation structures. The left side of the balance sheet are le consists of leveraged loans and the right side of the balance sheet is a tiering of, um, of securitized debt, uh, debt that is um, the debt, the leveraged loans are securitized by this tiered structure starting with AAA down to the equity. So we, in our CLO equity fund, seed those structures. And right now, I think we have about six, seven of these in existence. We've been doing this since 1999. Um, it's a different form of credit analysis and it's a different form of portfolio management when you're in a, a securitized structure like that. But they've proven to be very resilient because they're covenant-based. And oftentimes, uh, often during times of disruption, like we had during COVID, you have an opportunity to actually improve uh, the quality of your portfolio and trade in and out of things that improve the performance. And I think, um, what we've been able to do is because the arbitrage between what you earn on the leveraged loans on the left side of the balance sheet and what your liabilities uh, cost you, that spread then re redounds to the benefit of the equity. Um, and you get the residual and you get paid over time. And what we've been able to achieve is basically double digit returns on the equity. And also for those institutions like uh, Japanese institutions, for example, who just want this spread of a AAA security, this is uh, appealed to them uh, given their investment mandate. So essentially you've created a tiering that appeals to different uh, uh, institutions for different reasons. Um, and then we have a real estate uh, platform that provides equity in certain situations. Uh, we do that with ACOM, the uh, worldwide uh, contracting firm. We do that in a partnership with our real estate firm. And then we also have a lending platform where we make loans to developers who can't uh, access traditional uh, financing under the post uh, Dodd-Frank strictures. So we make senior mezzanine loans uh, to those developers. And what we earn on those senior mezzanine loans is a lot different than what uh, a conventional lender would uh, lend when the project is actually finished. So the spreads can be huge. So for example, on a MES, MES loan, you could charge 13, 15%. And then eventually it's uh, the senior piece and the MES piece is replaced by traditional financing with a low interest rate, like maybe it's LIBOR plus 250, 300. So you can see that once you get through that three year uh, period, all of a sudden, the developer faces a whole different situation. It's very expensive in the interim, but think of it this way, you're creating a long duration asset and the first three years is expensive, but once you get past that period, you've now locked in uh, or have available to you really cheap financing. So as a result, it, 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 you know, our relationships there and the ability 
ability to do these kinds of loans, especially again with the strictures of Dodd-Frank on, on regional and, and uh, money center banks really creates an opportunity. So it's those kinds of things where you're dealing with complexity or holes or gaps in the, in the market. And you wouldn't think in today's ubiquitously liquid capital markets, there would be these holes or these gaps. Um, but it is, it is a function of financial technology to some extent. And to another extent, it's a function of the, the sheer volume of different kinds of deals that are being facilitated by the access to capital in different areas of the market. So for example, ETFs, for example, credit ETFs, only will allow a certain kind of credit. You know, you have to, you have to be kind of, uh, as I say, commoditized high yield, which is kind of an oxymoron in a sense. You would say is high yield is commoditized, but in today's world with the tight spreads, yes, there's, you know, the rating agents would say, here's a commoditized type of high yield security that would fit in an ETF. What we do is more custom design um, capital market solution stuff. And certainly when we do restructurings where we're taking an over-leveraged company and creating new securities that wouldn't fit into an ETF. Often that gets kicked out of an ETF or gets kicked out of a CLO, which means you now have a supply demand imbalance that gives us an opportunity. There's so much to unpack there. There are a couple of concepts you mentioned, uh, balance sheet dynamics, staying power, duration. And I think we will come back to these concepts again and again. But maybe another uh, way to frame this, the, the beginning of this discussion is you previously said you can't be a great equity investor without being a solid uh, credit analyst. So, so why do you say so? Is credit analysis mainly focusing on the balance sheets, on the, on the liabilities? What is this framework actually in right. application look like? So I was basically, what I was describing for was, you know, in, in answer to the question of what we do which is basically uh, analyze the balance sheet and its dynamics over through time and finding where there are pockets of opportunity due to the complexity of this situation or the fact that there's supply demand imbalance uh, for the reasons I mentioned and, um, and, and do that across a variety of different types of platforms. But what they have in common is the notion that you really have to understand the dynamics of how the left side of the balance sheet, that is the business, and the right side of the balance sheet, the capital structure, interact and go through changes over time for a variety of reasons. And it's those interactions, those feedback effects that uh, Mike Milken particularly understood when we worked, Josh, my, my co-founding partner, and I worked for the Milken uh, office department in Beverly Hills in the 1980s. Michael really understood how capital structure determines um, really how a business can thrive or die. And if you only had available to you bank debt, you know, kind of plain vanilla bank debt, many companies that were emerging at the time in the 80s, like MCI, or companies that had tremendous content in their libraries, but maybe not a lot of cash flow at the moment because they were investing in new movies, uh, like MGM, really deserved um, kind of mezzanine or high yield financing and didn't. 
And so as a result, he really weaned a lot of these companies off of their dependence on money center banks and created a market that um, recognized that companies at different stages of their life cycle need different types of capital structures. So for example, in a venture capital situation, you know, you'd fund it mostly with, with equity, very little debt. Um, because it does, it's not generating, it's consuming cash as it ramps up. It's not, it's not generating cash. Whereas a mature company could be probably recapitalized with more debt and less equity, and maybe even taken private because it has that kind of steady state cash flow that maybe a private equity investor can improve over time that in the way a public company couldn't do it. So when you recognize that there are different kinds of balance sheets with different kinds of, of dynamics, and contrary to what Modigliani and Miller uh, said theoretically, which is capital structure is irrelevant in, under certain assumptions, you realize that in the real world, those assumptions don't hold. And when they don't hold, they create opportunities to figure out how to either buy something in the secondary market or create a security yourself um, that have risk reward characteristics that are very important and dominate what you can find, let's, let's say in a high yield index or ETF or something like that, or the typical uh, high yield mutual fund or leveraged loan fund. And, um, and so, you know, the way, you know, we have been operating uh, with our firm, we have uh, a team of 50 different uh, analysts and uh, and uh, trading people is to make sure that we have relationships with the buy side and the sell side, such that uh, we're we're in the news flow and the re and also in the deal flow. And so whether we're going through a period of distress and restructuring, or a period of simply high. A uh, high velocity of, of deal making, whether it's because of SPACs or, or private equity or strategic deals, like for example, um, AT&T. Um, we played that situation with um, ownership of Time Warner. So AT&T buys Time Warner, then it realizes it can't do everything at the same time, maintain a dividend, um, which is uh, shareholders expect, uh, build out its spectrum, a buy spectrum and build out its 5G network given the high cost of spectrum uh, uh, given the last auction and also invest in enough programming so that they have with let's say HBO Max a viable a streaming competitor to Netflix or Disney Plus. So what's the answer? Um, turn around and take the acquisition that they made and uh, you know, put it, you know, merge it with, uh, as a spinoff, tax-free spinoff with um, Discovery, which has its own level of content and try to create a bigger boat to withstand the sharks that are in the water attacking them every day. And what does that do for AT&T? It frees up um, the need to invest. It, they get 40 billion in cash and then they get a major, I think they own 70, 80%, 70, 80% of the combined company, and um, and then they put it into good hands uh, with um, this guy Zaslav, David Zaslav, and hopefully the, the the shares that 
that the, the AT&T shareholders will get. They'll now own a, teleco a pure telecom company and, and then they'll own a content company, which hopefully will have enough heft to be a, a streaming competitor. Well, think about how, di how disjunctive those changes are. You can make money on the uh, risk arb spread when, for whatever reason, AT&T thought it needed content to build out its, um, its uh, cellular platform. It would, that when things went mobile, it needed this content. Then it turns around and says no. And it you know, structures this financing. Now you're gonna, instead of owning AT&T, you're gonna own AT&T and you're gonna own, uh, you know, what I guess they're gonna call the Warner Brothers uh, Discovery, I guess. And, um, and, and, and you'll have lower dividend from AT&T, um, but a less leveraged company. And one that with that focus will probably be better understood in the marketplace. So hopefully it will re-rate up both because it's less risky and more focused and better able to compete against the Verizons and the T-Mobiles of the world. And meanwhile, Discovery will be better able to compete against the Netflix. And so that's just prototypical of all, look at all the different ways you can make money. You can make money in the risk arb originally, you can make money on the spinoff perhaps, um, although so far the market doesn't seem to like it. Um, the same thing, uh, we were involved with Viacom for the same reason, because Viacom is going to have to make a decision, right? It has Paramount Studios. It's trying to do its own streaming platform with Paramount Plus. Is it going to sell the studio to somebody or combine it with something and then have the rest of Viacom's business, um, cable channels, et cetera, et cetera, as a separate thing? We don't know. Um, she's, uh, you know, the, uh, the CEO, uh, Sherry, um, I'm blanking on the last name, um, is gonna, you know, inherited the company from her father. Her father loved the company, he just recently, uh, Redstone, Sherry Redstone. So Sumner loved the company. Uh, so she's got legacy issues that are not necessarily congruent with uh, the interests of shareholders, but the pressures of the market may force this kind of change that then creates opportunities for people like us. So that's really in the equity arena, but think about it also from the standpoint of debt securities, right? The same kind of uh, situation is going on. Companies are either deleveraging or releveraging. They're either spinning off companies and loading them up with debt, which is sort of what's happening to discovery, or they're deleveraging because they have too much debt and they're issuing equity. A good example that we're recently involved in is AMC Theaters, right? It's one of the meme, uh, meme stocks, stocks, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and so we, we own, uh, we own the, the first lien debt in the domestic company. And we also recently were one of the people who put together the debt of the uh, European operation. So the company has assiduously been doing what we call amend and extend or whatever, trying to push out its debt maturities and raise more debt capacity to the extent it could, and also opportunistically raise equity along the way because this, the stock has defied gravity. And you just saw the recent sale that was done over the weekend of what was it, 
$260 million to this hedge fund, which in turn, which is typically does what we do in distress and owns debt in AMC similar to what similar to what we do, and yet bought the stock and then sold it into the retail market or to some institutional holders. And now that helps clean up the balance sheet. So you would expect that the debt will trade better now because there's more equity cushion. I think right now AMC has an, a market capitalization of equity uh, of approximately $12 billion. I think the total amount of debt on the company is about seven to eight billion. This is unbelievable when you think of it because it's still not generating positive cash flow and still has a substantial debt burden. But we think, at least through the debt at our level being secured by assets um, in terms of uh, leasehold interest and the franchise and the tangibles, um, and uh, whether domestically or, or in Europe, that our level, at our level, the company will have a baseline of business in a recovery situation post-COVID um, that will work out. Now, the equity is more of an option, and certain people will make a lot more money than we will make, perhaps, or they could lose a lot more money. But from our standpoint, the risk-reward being in the first lien at both domestic and European uh, entities is is good place to be. And we collect interest along the way, which is a good thing. So the total return is probably double digits at that level. And for our purposes, that's good. But what's the big headline? The big headline here is the original insight that Mike brought to, um, to the market in the 80s, which is that capital structure matters. And I would go even further that the right side of the balance sheet affects the left and the left side of the balance sheet affects, affects the right. And unless you understand how the balance sheet will progress over time, which really requires you to understand accounting in, as an integrative framework, um, you will not necessarily understand the, the staying power, earnings power of the company and not necessarily understand which security, existing security you might want to invest in in the capital structure from a risk reward standpoint, or which security you think you might bring to them and to the company um, as a solution to a problem that they're facing. So for example, if a bank is pressuring a company because the debt is due and they want them to sell an asset to pay them down, we would say, you know, something, let's, we'll take out the banks, we'll be more expensive, but we'll give you more time to sell the asset or do something similar to deleverage. It could be maybe you'll raise equity or you'll do a spin-off. You know, we'll give you that flexibility even though our covenants will be tight and our interest rate will be higher. But again, it's like when I was mentioning lending to a developer. You know, if you have a business with long-term assets that have value, paying high interest rates with tight covenants um, over a three, four year period where we may earn double digit returns is okay when you look at the long-term value of the company. You get rid of us, we allow you to get rid of us. We, you have to pay us to get rid of us, but you can get rid of us. And when you do, you slot in cheaper financing and guess what? The rest of your capital tr structure trades better. Your equity will go up. 
and um, and you live to fight another day in this crazy, disruptive, highly competitive world. And these are things that we've done time and time again. So, you know, I you know the the mantra I like to because it rhymes that I like to think about when I think about balance sheet change and investing is anticipate how how that balance sheet is going to evolve over time by integrating accounting in a in a in a comprehensive dynamic framework to uh, measure staying power and earnings power. So anticipate what's how it's going to evolve. Precipitate, uh, let's say, an opportunity to invest in that company uh, with a better solution than what they have uh, existing in their capital structure securities, and that, or participate in some other deal that is out there that we get wind of because we're one of the few um, platforms that has been around for so long and we have the long-term relationships and we're known as a trusted uh, player with others, uh, our colleagues on the buy side and the sell side. So we get to be the first one of the five calls to do a, what they would call a clubbed up deal. Or we will, you know, so it's anticipate, precipitate, or participate. It's, it all sounds so complex to me, but I guess to, to tie everything together, you also talked about how complex systems are endogenously risky and complex investments can be endogenously liquid, which can serve to buffer the endogenous risks of complex systems. And I think you, you brought up the AMC uh, part of the investment. So AMC is, the stock is up like 35% this morning uh, as, as we're speaking. I mean, that's, what, that, that's what you have a, when you have a reinforcing feedback loop. Right. So let me, I'll, I'll talk about complex systems in a moment. And, um, but, cause it is, part of the, if you're going to invest in complex securities and situations, you have to understand complexity a little bit, right? It would, you know, it's like, oh, we invest in complex situation securities. I mean, okay, do you have any worldview about what that means, right? You know, I, I like to think that we have a worldview, we have a research process consistent with that worldview, and then we have a corporate culture. So when they, when you put it all together, um, you know, it's like a Venn diagram, you know, the three circles intersect and the intersection, you know, if you visualize it is, I think, um, systems and design thinking, which, you know, I know you guys do at uh, Princeton, you know, you guys uh, have the benefit of a design thinking program out of the Keller Center, which I, you know, and the, entre and, and the entrepreneurship um, uh, certificate that you can earn by taking various courses as an adjunct to your major. It's a very, very important thing that you have at Princeton. Um, so I'll talk to you about the complexity in a second. But uh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention before I get into that is that a lot of what uh, I've, I've mentioned about accounting you, being so important to understanding how a balance sheet evolves over time and how the left and right side of the balance sheet you know, interact in a dynamic way is something that I essentially learned at Princeton from Uwe Reinhardt, you know, and um, I'm a graduate of class 77 and Uwe Reinhardt um, was, before he, became, he got his PhD in health economics at Yale, he, to make ends meet, was an accountant in Canada. Uh, he had emigrated from Germany and then he became um, an accountant 
uh, going to school in Canada. And then he was able to enter the PhD program at Yale. So when he eventually came to Princeton, even though his, you know, he taught macro and micro and was at the time of his death, an unfortunate death, um, that um, I think way too early given how vigorous and terrific a person he was and such a mentor to so many of us uh, and he's deeply missed. But, um, you know, he believed, he was always kind of a maverick. And, uh, and I, maybe that comes from coming out of another country and not necessarily being sort of Ivy League, uh, homegrown Ivy League. And he really believed that, um, that he needed, counting needed to be taught at Princeton. Now you'll notice that there, into, be, when I when, went to school, Princeton, they really prided themselves on, if you were a li you know, liberal arts, right? Or, you know, you had the engineering track, right? So there's, and there, there was cross-pollination there. The Woodrow Wilson School at the time, or that, that was the name at the time, now it's just called the School of Public and International Affairs. Um, but when I went to the, the school, it was really one of the more, more flexible interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary platforms. So you could do a variety of things in economics and public policy and, uh, and still have a viable major. And it always was my belief that, that accounting, after I took uh, Uva's course that he was so dedicated to teaching over the years, was one of the most important things that a student could learn, which is why, if you, if you notice, the Center for Public Policy and Finance within the School of Public and International Affairs has this, has this accounting course as a annual offering. It's a requirement when, I, when our family set up the center and our agreement with Shirley Tillman was, uh, President Tillman was that they offered this. And this was not just an honor of Professor Reinhardt's legacy, but because I thought it was so important and because of the way he taught it. He taught it as a language for understanding how the world works. And as he said a few years back, um, when we asked him, why was, you know, why was accounting so important for you to teach at Princeton? He said, well, in a democracy, a democracy depends on accountability. And accounting is one of the most important ways to ensure accountability. And so, you know, he, he really looked at it as a system of thinking. And uh, I later understood more fully when I took uh, courses um, executive ed courses at MIT on system dynamics, that uh, counting is a stock flow system. And, uh, and if you take courses over at, uh, you know, the uh, School of Engineering Applied Science, if you do ORFI, for example, right? Um, what is it? ORFI stands for Operational, Operational Research, Research and, and Financial Engineering, right? Well, yeah stock flow systems are really important to what they study, right? And accounting is stock flow system because um, you know, the balance sheet is, it represents the stock of, of resources and obligations and the flows are essentially the accruals and the, ca the cash and the accruals that are generated by operating the business. 
And then, so you go from one state to another state, right? You start with a balance sheet and then you have a set of um, things happening and then you end up with an ending state. And of course that then continues to evolve over time. So in a sense, uh, as a stock flow system, it represents a, com com a, a, a complex system, even though accounting is essentially, you know, um, under-inclusive under and over-inclusive perhaps of really what's going on. It, it's, it's, it's a representation. You have to obviously have other things to really understand what the business is, but it does a pretty good baseline job of taking a lot of data, organizing it, and if you frame it as a stock flow system, really understanding how a balance sheet evolves over time, and that gives you tremendous insights. And so every stock flow system has feedback. So that all that means is, for example, like I said before, the right side of the balance sheet is gonna affect the left and the left side of the balance sheet is gonna affect the right. So if you have a company that doesn't generate a lot of cash flow and doesn't have a lot of tangible assets and has a very leveraged capital structure, it better, the market better really view the prospects in the future of that company as being significant, right? The equity value sitting below all that debt should be pretty high to give the company the ability to continue to issue debt. Otherwise, and then, excuse me, to issue equity and then maybe issue debt to replenish and keep going the business until it gets to positive cash flow, right? So that's it. That's a very simple example of how the nature of the capital structure will either facilitate or constrain the nature of the business. Similarly, like I said, if you have a mature business, it could have a different kind of capital structure. So that gives you an insight to the beginnings of why we like to invest in complex securities and situations, because we look at the world from that basic standpoint of number one, systems, systems uh, dynamics, uh, which consist of stocks and flows, which accounting does a good job of at least giving you a baseline, feedback, tipping points, you know, nonlinearity. You know, people have a lot hard time understanding geometric progression, but in many respects, businesses, especially those today, um, and this is what Buffett counts on when he thinks about compounding elements of uh, book value. When he looks at companies' franchise value, he says the market is very has a hard time understanding the compounding geometric nature of building value. So complex complex systems have those basic elements: feedback, tipping points, nonlinearity, and uh, and there are always leverage points in the system. And all those insights uh, are very applicable to understanding how to invest as a value investor. Now, there's other things that are that we use that are really representative of our background. For example, um, Josh, my partner Josh, you know, came from the corporate finance world. He worked at Goldman. He did M&A. And when he worked at Drexel, he did a lot of uh, you know deals like uh, leverage buyouts. So in a way I did working on restructurings, I did leverage diets, he did leverage buyouts. That's what Josh 
said we captured the whole span <laughs> of companies in different states with different balance sheets with different sets of opportunities to either create securities, problem solve, make investments in the secondary market. So, um, you know, essentially, when you're dealing with those kinds of situations, it's good to think about, okay, um, what's the feedback between the left and the right side of the balance sheet? Is there a tipping point, for example, where there's just way too much debt? And if there is, can I solve that with an exchange offer or an amend extend uh, situation where I go to the company and we say, okay, we own a certain amount of, of credit here with this other group. We will amend our credit instrument, give you more breathing room, and you have to give us better economics. You have to give us more collateral. You have to give us better covenants, but we will give you breathing room. Notice that that's a little different than what I said before. The, uh, and what I said before, sometimes we'll actually take out an existing layer of debt or we'll convert. But in this case, what we're doing is changing the duration of an existing security. Um, and sometimes like in Caesars, we'll take a package and say, well, you got way too much debt, especially you, you need more time to grow into your capital search. We know you have all these nascent businesses like online gaming and sports betting. And, uh, but that's gonna come you know, over time. You don't have a capital structure that allows that. So we put on our, our investment banking, corporate finance heads hats and say, you know, we're value investors, but we're also deal guys, right? And we know how from the deal side, when we did that, let's go to the company and say, you know what you need in the case of Caesars, and it's recounted in that new book that just came out. Um, we'll create a opco and we'll create a propco. And the propco will be a REIT. And because it's real estate, it should get a lower cost of capital, right? Because it's, you know, they, they're, the they're the landlord and they should get a stream of cash. And overall, even though it shouldn't exist, as Modigliani Miller would say, capital structure is relevant. The, the breaking up of the company into an opco propco could create a lot more value than if they were smushed together because it's more understandable when you're getting a unit and a different set of investors when in, in the REIT that we created, which is called Vici. Way different set of institutional investors that invest in REITs because of the, you know, you're getting the dividend payout, et cetera, et cetera, versus somebody who likes the optionality of a, of, an, of a company that has both real estate and an online platform. Um, so, you know, as a value investor and a credit-oriented value investor um, that embraces complexity and understands these basic concepts and uses accounting to the max, hopefully, by understanding it, how it can capture balance sheet dynamics. Um, if you bring, in addition, this investment banking corporate finance experience, you really have an opportunity to do things that are value creating, give you and give you an edge uh, in the market. Now, I'm not saying that we're the only ones who have those combined set of skills with the team that we have at Canyon, but it is something that over time, if you have low turnover and you build up these relationships and you're trusted, that you will be able to anticipate, precipitate, and participate in these things. And hopefully they are, their risk reward characteristics are, will be um, part 
of the individual situation will create when combined in a portfolio in the right structure, whether hedge fund, locked up fund, or um, some other platform that you know will generate uh, preservation of capital, capital and good returns over time. It's, it's, it's such a complex set of ideas to, to talk about. I still remember the first time I heard this set of ideas from you was uh, late February at the low interest rate roundtable at the Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies in Princeton. Right. And but now you want to get into macro. I've been focusing on the micro. And, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was fascinating because that, that was the time when the GameStop saga was unfolding in real time. Right. And you were saying how perhaps the balance sheets of a hedge fund like Melvin Capital back then were very susceptible to the, these kind of acute exogenous shocks, like the sudden or sharp rises in the stock prices. Yeah. And then they're not suitable to engage in this kind of trench warfare with retail investors. And that was a time when structure determined behavior and behavior determined structure. And, and over the last few months, we also saw other dramatic market accidents like uh, Archegos, Greensill. Do you feel like these all comes down to the interconnectedness between the various balance sheets, the, the structures of these hedge funds or corporations, uh, and, and, and whether liquidity-driven events could cascade into something worse uh, because so of that, their leverage. So look, I mean, what you're bringing up another thing, another idea that I consider very, very important. I learned both at Princeton and at MIT. Princeton under U Uwe Reinhardt and actually Fred Greenstein, who taught political, um, he taught really the plumbing of government and also how he taught, I would say he taught plumbing and personality. He, under, he taught how bureaucracy can often affect policy. This is Fred Greenstein and how personality, because he really understood psychology of presidents and has written, wrote extensively on that. But um, one of the, uh, he had us read um, during the time that Nixon was going through his downfall he, uh, we read in Fred Greenstein's class in 1974, Presidential Power by Richard Neustadt, who I believe was the first head of the Kennedy School of Government. And Richard Neustadt said something that I've always thought about in investing, which goes to, to some of the things that you're referencing when I gave my talk. Well, when I was on the panel back in February with Alan Blinder and uh, Chris Sims, I think, right? And um, so he said that uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. And um, that was a quote from some guy who, who studied bureaucracy uh, assiduously, which was Rufus Miles, where you stand depends on where you sit. So when you think about it in terms of complex systems, it's a very, very, important thought because of what it means is that your individuals, even though economics posits how, you know, individual agents determine market behavior, you know, you know, maximizing utility, et cetera, et cetera. Human beings actually are social animals and they form organizations, right? And that's how organizations, whether in the public or private sectors, and it's through those organizations that decisions are made and you get leverage by collective learning, right? And, um, and the incentives and decision rules within organizations, whether it's politics, bureaucracy, whatever, 
affect people's behavior. So that's what structure determines behavior or where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand in an organization depends on where you sit on a particular issue. Structure determines behavior. Similarly, behavior will determine structure. Sometimes a president has a certain personality and a certain vision that is going to kind of dominate the structure. FDR is a great example, or Kennedy is another example. Fred Greenstein wrote an amazing book on Eisenhower, who was, a, he, in his view, was an underrated president, but had this amazing worldview about the position in the United States in, in dealing with the Cold War and the post-Korea uh, war situation, right? And if you remember the parting speech of Eisenhower was about structure. <laughs> what did he say? He said, beware of the military industrial complex, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty, pr pretty amazing comment to make as he's leaving in 1960, as he's leaving office and handing the rings to the next generation in the form of John Kennedy, right? And what happens, the military industrial complex? What was Kennedy's first big mistake? The Bay of Pigs, he listened to the generals. But <laughs> it was great that he had the, the he, he was humbled by the Bay of Pigs fiasco because it helped him in dealing with the so-called expertise of the generals when it came to the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis only a year or so later and the ability to really understand personality, structure, structure determines behavior, behavior determines structure. You, Essence of Decision, I think, is one of the most important books you can read, but it has insights into investing because unless you understand how organizations intermediate the decisions of key people, this, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit, you're really gonna underestimate how it shows up in the pricing of securities and um, your ability to uh, uh, effectuate uh, change in a situation. And restructurings where everybody has a seat at the table in some way under our bankruptcy restructuring laws is an example of how the rule of law and the structure it creates with the personalities, and there's some very colorful, very smart people in the restructuring business, you know, how you know, you're going to play that game. Caesars was one of the most complex of them all, but there's others that have been created out of COVID, uh, so whether it's travel port that we've been involved in or CBL, which is a REIT, uh, mall REIT, which was obviously affected by the shutdown or AMC theaters. Um, you know, again, you have to understand how the structure and you have to understand how it affects behavior. And then you also have to understand how people's behavior will lead to innovation and change and sometimes something unexpected in the way things evolve and in, in, in a, what you would think would be, here's the conventional way to restructure a, a company. And then all of a sudden somebody has a different vision, right? He has a different vision how it should go and he has the resources to bring it to bear, right? So in the case of Caesars, it was the personality and the power of the judge, ultimately, who made the, the decision to bring the case to a, a negotiated settlement. He intervened in a muscular way. You can read it in the book. 
Now, of course, he had the powers given to him under the law, right? But he had to have a certain view of what was appropriate use of that, that power that he had. And when he and he held back for a long time until he had the facts, he saw the behavior, and then he intervened in a very, 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 very powerful way. And he brought it to a conclusion. So, you know, unless you understand those things, you're not really going to um, necessarily, you, 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 you could get blindsided. Uh, so that's, that, that's um, you know, that's what I, that's what I think of when, in terms of structure determines behavior and behavior determines structure. And by the way, it, it, you know, in systems thinking, um, although the tendency for people to, you know, to bring in feelings, emotional feelings into these things and to, to, you know, ascribe bad motives to people and think they're bad people. A lot of the behavior you see in all of these investment situations is really informed by uh, the, the decision rules and incentives of the organizations that they're part of, whether a hedge fund or a private equity fund. And it's not like whether, you know, there are some people who, you know, don't, don't have any moral underpinnings, uh, but they're, that's the exception, you know, and most people understand how to balance ethics and effectiveness. They were raised properly by the parents and, uh, and they understand the rule of law. Um, I like to think that, you know, we, we just, as, as JD MBAs, Josh and I, not only respect the law, but we, you know, in a way, um, I'm speaking personally as a Jew, you're supposed to love the law because essentially the law, yeah. the, you know, the Torah, the yeah. Bible, uh, Old Testament, whatever, I mean, that is, that is the Almighty's gift. So, you know, we're supposed to not just respect the law, we're supposed to love it <laughs> because essentially it's instructions for living. And, uh, that's my personal view. You just you don't need to ascribe it to anybody else in the firm. But I really believe that. Um, but if you do love the law and respect it, then you you will have two things going for you that um, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs spoke about, which is you have uh, both a covenant within your organization with your employees with a social covenant, and then you have a social contract you know so contracts are transactional covenants are not just quid pro quo so for example the declaration of independence is rabbi Sachs used to say is a social covenant it sets out a certain foundational rights um, that we have in this country the social contract is the constitution it's much more of a here are the powers the federal government and anything that's not enumerated is reserved to the states and then it gets amended and et cetera, et cetera. And you know, within organizations, you can call that, call that corporate culture and corporate culture is a function of a social covenant and a social contract. And, and, and you have to be true to it. And you know, we're all capable of being seduced by the, you know, the opportunity to make money or you know, to gain power or whatever it is that, uh, but you, know, you have to have your head screwed on, right? Because otherwise 
The franchise value, particularly firms like us, are really lies in the ability to be trusted, our reputation, and you could destroy it and you know with bad behavior in a moment. How do you think about risk and uncertainty in in those times? You brought up we we were talking about behavior structure. We were talking about a lot of those personalities. If we talk about the the military industrial complex, and Donald yeah. Rumsfeld would be the guy to talk to you about risk is the the. The, the known unknown and the yeah. uncertainty is something you can't even model. It's the unknown you ever unknown. See, do you so, see the documentary that was done on him uh, when he tries I, I, to I, explain I, the known unknowns, the yeah. unknown unknowns? <laughs> he gets bollocked up in his own yeah, yeah, definitional yeah. thing. Um, look, Mervyn King, who used to be the head of the Bank of England, um, basically believes that financial systems are so complex and perhaps, oh, what's the word for it? Beyond complexity, they are uh, chaotic. Radical uncertainty or, or chaotic. Well, chaotic or whatever. I don't know if you would say they're chaotic, but he talked about radical uncertainty. So his idea was, you know, given the 2008 crisis, is the, you need brute force, in, uh, re, brute force uh, underpinning of, of the major players uh, in the financial markets. That is, the money center banks have to have more equity and have to be more constrained in terms of their risk taking. Because actually, you can't figure out probabilistically what's going to present the systemic risk to the system. So you just have to you know, have more capital and you have to be more constrained. So when you think about it, that created a tremendous opportunity in the <clears throat> what they call the shadow banking system or the alternative lending investing arena since the 2008. I mean, it's the banks were seen as the, the center of uh, the financial crisis. You know, the insurance companies like AIG that, you know, insured the subprime, you know, uh, took on the credit default insurance Imagine an AIG believing that part of its insurance activities is to insure for Goldman Sachs the subprime mortgages that they took on their balance sheet, right? That interconnectedness um, is not is something that Dodd-Frank tried to untangle. And they did it by, you know, a variety of measures, one of which was, like I said, just forcing them to increase. Their, the amount of equity cushion and restraining them, the Volcker rule and restraining their activities. So when you think about that, that means that they create uh, the opportunity for all these other institutions like ourselves or Apollo or Aries to fill that gap, you know, to provide, you know, in the secondary market or, or to provide capital market solutions, use our balance sheet, not with, when their balance sheet is constrained. So the growth of, the, of our company and particularly those other companies, Blackstone, BlackRock, Ares, Apollo, et cetera, et cetera, is really a function of the fact that the structure of the system changed where in recognition of the fact that you're dealing with radical uncertainty. You know, if, val if VAR was still a valid concept, then, you know, you would still have very highly leveraged financial institutions, right? Yeah. Because yeah. supposedly you scientifically can figure out what the 1% situation is where you need a certain, you know, and guess what? We seem to be having these, whether it's the financial crisis or a pandemic, 
we need we need that brute force underpinning of the not just the money center banks but even the fed providing this insurance policy in the form of its um, unconventional monetary uh, approach um, in terms of restrict keeping interest rates on the front end low and having this massive you know buying program uh, and and blowing up its balance sheet to provide liquidity in the system. Um, and so maybe that insurance policy in the constrained in the banks is a function of the increased complexity of the world, supposedly uh, and the interconnectedness and you have to create these kinds of disconnects or um, circuit breakers. Um, or insurance policies, as I say, in framing what the Fed has done, uh, the Federal Reserve has done, and other central banks have done. Um, and I think it's so that's an indication that the world is not just a world of risk, it's a world of uncertainty and perhaps even radical uncertainty. And then the question is okay, then where, how do you invest in, in that environment? And, and the answer is well, you'd like to invest in those areas where you think there's an insurance policy being provided, even though it's not an explicit insurance policy. So one of the areas that we had that opportunity and continue, even though it's still a little lower, a much lower rate than before, was in the residential mortgage-backed securities market because the, the government determined from a policy point of view that it needed to utilize various extant structures and new laws um, like the Federal Home Loan Bank and keeping Fannie and Freddie alive to make sure that one of the biggest and most important assets that the American citizen had, his, the home, was not going to have a free fall in value that would cause tremendous repercussions across the country. You know, it's one of those leverage points in the system. So when you understand that, that there's going to be this support, um, then you, you know, you can, that's a tailwind so that you can find the kinds of securities that we accumulated uh, over time that had the benefit of that tailwind. Since so we're talking I'm, about I'm basically saying two things. One is that post 2008, um, the restraint of the banks because of the fact that they were considered the epicenter of the crisis created an opportunity for alternative lending and investing. And you see the, the growth of these various institutions and their profitability as a result. The second thing I'm saying is that restraint was a reflection of radical uncertainty, not just risk being in the system. And yet an investor can still invest amidst radical uncertainty because if, if you find those areas which are supported by policies designed to mitigate that and a lot of those policies are brute force and i would say in post-covid everything has been brute force there's certain degree there's a certain degree of of real interesting finesse in the amount of fiscal stimulus that was provided plus what the, the the kinds of programs that the Fed designed. So there was some finesse, but a lot of it was brute force. 
and continues to be. When you think about what they want to do now under the Biden administration to continue to provide stimulus and this, an expansive notion of infrastructure, it is a brute force kind of approach uh, to keeping the economy going. What, what are your thoughts on this brute force? Because, I mean, since we're really on the macro macro level and uh, we're, I guess th this should also tie back to the research of my thesis advisor and also the director of the Trudis Rabinowitz Center, uh, Atif Mian, and he has been studying the most dominant macro financial trends in the past few decades. You know, the, the a dramatic fall in real interest rates, the buildup in household and government debt, right. the f financialization of the greater economy, decline in inflation, the market co concentration going up, decline in productivity growth and real investments and secular stagnation and so on. We can keep going on naming these things. And this is really kind of tying finance and public policy together, uh, all coming back in full circle. So Mitch, I guess the, the very broad question to you is, what do, what do you think of where we're headed? Do you think we're going into a more fragile economic environment? Well, I always, I, I felt before COVID hit that to some extent, when you're dealing with um, an aging population like the United States, although it's not aging as rapidly as Europe and Japan, that what you, you, what you see around the world or what you see in, in China, which is aging rapidly, because um, the one child policy that they're just recently reversed, that I, I, I described it as pro-growth debt monetization, which is essentially what you've seen, a, common, a, a coordination between the treasury function and the, um, the central bank function. So the treasury issues securities to finance certain things, and then the, and the central bank, the Federal Reserve in this case, buys them, buys those securities. And then what you would hope is that the way money gets allocated, whether it's in the public or private markets or through public private partnerships, that the allocation of the resources provided by that kind of financing at the federal level and its repercussions for financing at the micro level will result in the United States enjoying a period of growth that would allow it to grow into its increasingly leveraged balance sheet. In other words, again, think of the United States as a balance sheet, just like a company. You know, demographically, because people have, as I, I've said before, the duration issue is not just an issue that comes up in investment. William Sharp has recognized in the work that he has done most recently in the last 10 years, that the major duration issue facing the, our country is longevity, right? Not just the duration of securities and, and how, how do people invest and what do they, how long do they work and what do they invest in? So um, the question is, you know that when people live, will live longer, social security, health care, et cetera, et cetera, that will increase the obligations that we have to our population as it, as it ages. So um, what are our levers to that? Well, we can, we can try to make the population younger, which is what China has just announced, by more immigration, promoting you know, support for families you know, to, to have more kids because there's uh, preschool stuff and uh, you know, family services. Um, that's one way of doing it so that the younger people support 
a large amount of young people support a large, a, a growing amount of older people. But a lot, a lot of it will also come from being um, how the system allocates those resources. So the United States is particularly blessed with tremendous amount of natural resources. Um, we found out with fracking, et cetera, et cetera, we really broke, um, now, you know, there's obviously externalities, but we broke the, the oil cartel in many ways. And that's a huge resource that we didn't think we had. We also had the resource of, of our um, you know, universities and the ability of people to really be creative, a system which, you know, there are two types of systems. There's the tight system, and then there's the loose system, they say. And the tight, the tight system is like you saw in COVID. You can do lockdowns. You can restrict behavior. People will be obedient and put on their masks. The loose systems are the ones that are innovative. They'll come up with the vaccines, right? You know, our vaccine miracle here comes from having a loose system. So there are positives and negatives to both. One would hope that with pro-growth debt monetization in our loose system in the United States, that just like a leverage buyout, the left side of our balance sheet is going to be able to grow into what you know will be an increased debt load. You know it's going to happen. That's the hope. Now, I, that is not saying I, I'm an advocate of modern monetary, you know, theory. Well, that's a theory. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which, you know, you're now seeing here, in, you know, yeah. in the Biden administration, which is the idea that. It's okay. We're a reserve currency. We can, you know, we can just do this and, you know, print money or not print money per se, but the essentially the Fed will just will buy Help all the securities that, that, you that are issued by the Treasury, and that these programs with an expansive notion of infrastructure are pro-growth to the max. You know, where the government will say, okay. There's a paucity of investments in the private sector. We'll invest intelligently in the public sector to gin up the kind of growth that will allow us to grow into our increasingly leveraged balance sheet. So it's very responsible what we're doing. A lot of people would say, you know, this brute force approach, you know, of, of spending money and the government, you know, going into so many areas so quickly. Is really not the way to go. You have to you can, you can engage in pro-growth debt monetization, but don't don't have to do it to this extent. You you should really do it more cautiously, and encourage public-private partnerships or different forms of taxation, or more you know really well-designed, more um, uh, focused types of policies. Others say, no, no, we need a total revamp of our health care. As COVID has maybe pointed out, we need a total revamp of a broader notion of infrastructure. This is a big debate that we're going on. We're in the midst of it. And it's not just a policy debate. It's a politics debate because it really raises the issue of the power of the government, federal government versus the power of state and localities, which goes to constitutionality and all that other stuff I talked about before. So you're going to have very interesting strains on the social covenant and the social contract over the next few years. Absolutely. Uh, Mitch, I don't want to take more of your time, but I, I think just to gradually uh, end this interview, one tradition we always ask our guests at the very end is, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, we always ask, what would your punchline be for this interview? 
It could be about anything. Uh, <laughs> so my punchline is, you know, is gratitude. That's, you know, first and foremost, I have tremendous gratitude to my, to my grandparents who on both sides of my family, the Rabinowitz side and the Jula side, because they had to make a big decision to leave where they lived um, and, come to, and come and live in tenements and start a new life at the turn of the last century. And I think that has a lot in common with a lot of people, you know, who come from immigrant families in today's world. So I'm great, very grateful to them. I'm grateful to my parents because as teachers, they really, uh, really demonstrated the importance of learning throughout one's life. And, and they really gave me appreciation for how teachers, whether in the public school system of the Bronx in New York or in Rockland County or at Princeton or at Harvard or beyond, teachers in all venues are just so important. You know, the, the tr in Jewish, I was told by a rabbi in Jewish thinking, the trifecta of learning throughout one's life is to always have great teachers, have amazing partners, and then to have students. And, you know, I think Oscar Hammerstein in The King and I wrote this song, um, Getting to Know You. And one of the lines is, by your students, you'll be taught. You know, so when you have the opportunity to, to teach, you really learn more than they learn. So this is the trifecta and, uh, and that I think applies for whether you're Jewish, not Jewish, whatever. Um, so I have gratitude to all the teachers. I've had Professor Reinhardt, Professor Greenstein, um, my, you know, the people uh, up at Harvard, people like Martha Minow, Noah Feldman, uh, the people I work with on our program, Academic Exchange, I, you know, we bring these professors to Israel and for eight days, and I tell them, uh, say, uh, the heroes in my life have been these amazing teachers who sacrificed so much to give a, to pass on these ideas. So I have tremendous gratitude to them. I also um, want to say that, you know, I have very, I have obviously, from the, you know, gratitude to my family, uh, it, you know, um, being, being able to be married to somebody who's a real partner and to have kids that, you know, um, have good values is a blessing. It's a real blessing. And, um, you know, uh, I'm very grateful, tremendously grateful for my wife, Jolene, who's been very supportive and and, and having the privilege to being a partners with her in many things that we do together, whether it's philanthropically or personally. And then uh, my colleagues at Canyon, because particularly Josh Friedman and our partners here, because um, obviously the organization doesn't work based on two people. Uh, it worked, it based, it's based on the sacrifices that, particularly now with a lot of people moving to Dallas, that they're willing to make to serve our, our clients and our colleagues, each other here. So, you know, I think the gratitude attitude is something that is important. And it means you, you know, it's something that I think gives you a sense of optimism and joy in life, especially um, when you look at the world's problems. If you, if you don't have that sense of gratitude, I think you can get overwhelmed by what you see out there. So that's my punchline. My punchline 
is that, you know, to have gratitude for what people gave you in the past and what you're dealing with now, and then to use that energy to help solve some of the key problems that are meaningful to you and hopefully meaningful to make a difference in the world. Mitch, I also want to express my gratitude to you and to the Trulis Rabinowitz Center. I, I keep telling people this story when I was a freshman. It was hard to find an interesting intellectual alternative to, I mean, everybody is doing business clubs or consulting clubs or investment clubs at Trulis Rabinowitz Center just provided a venue where people give lunch talks and, and you just have there. It's a nice intellectual community with great advisors and colleagues and uh, we, we got to build this podcast from the ground up two years ago and up to today. Well, you, uh, you guys have been amazing. And I have to say, <laughs> just so you know, the heritage of the center, it was an idea that Chris Paxson, who was the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School had, that was supported by President Shirley Tillman. And it just seemed very important because especially post 2008, the feedback between policy people and finance people back and forth would really seem to be quite important so that we don't blow up the world again with, you know, excess. And, um, and then we were blessed really with Marcus Brunemeyer, who now heads Benheim. And then we had Atif Nian, right? And they were co-heads for a while. And then Marcus, who's a, an amazing person, uh, went off to Benheim. And then we have Atif, who's done an amazing job with the people, he, his team at the center. And the cross-pollination between these two people allows, for example, you can get a, a certificate in the Benheim Center in public policy. And, and that's a terrific thing. Um, and you know the fact that this was uh, fast-tracked so quickly because surely uh, Tillman believed in it and because of Chris Paxson's uh, understanding of why this was so important and was so timely um, really is why it's, it exists. And it was also inspired, again, I come back to this by the fact that I had amazing people when I was at Princeton in, in terms of Uwe Reinhardt, Fred Greenstein, and others, but they, they, those two, for example, as mentors uh, were just, you know, really changed my life uh, in terms of what I was interested in. Plus uh, my, my roommates who had uh, interest in other areas. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, you go to college and you think you know what you wanna do. And then all of a sudden you get influenced by your peers and your professors. And if they're really good people, and if they're not just talented academically, teaching-wise, but they really care about you. I mean, even, I mean, uh, another person was, um, oh, I'm blanking on, um, well, I'm blanking right now. Um, <laughs> the, uh, my oh, first uh, professor in Soviet economics, um, who became Dean of the School of Berkeley, and She'll kill me because I'm having a senior moment here. But, um, oh, Tyson, Laura D'Andrea Tyson. She became a friend uh, at, long after um, school. As, and so, to, and, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I mean, like when I used to come back to Princeton, um, 
Uwe Reinhardt would introduce me and, and he would say to his colleagues, he said, this Mitch Julissa, he's like a son to me, you know, and his wife, May, who um, is um, tremendously vibrant, still does a lot of work in health economics and their kids, you know, I, I, to have that uh, uh, experience at Princeton, where you really develop these re lifelong relationships that of learning and dealing with the both joys and sorrows, uh, loss and gain is, is, is just a tremendous thing. And I think what it also does is not just build your sense of gratitude, but it, and it, which informs your work, but it also gives you a sense of humility because these are really, these people, Fred Greenstein who passed and Uwe Reinhardt who passed, and all the people that I've mentioned who are still doing amazing work, they're really great people. And you gotta be, you have to have a sense of awe that, and, and a sense of aspiring to, to how they've led their lives. They become really great role models, no matter whether you're 66 year old or whatever. And um, so um, that's how I feel. And that's why I, you know, I wanted to do this and, and why I'm grateful to you, Tiger, for taking the opportunity to build on the platform, create something that hopefully will endure this punchline. Uh, it, it, it will definitely endure. We have a very brilliant team of students that I think are, are just, uh, they were doing so much better as freshmen than I was as sophomores when I first started the podcast. And I think this platform really provided an intellectual alternative for us that, that we don't feel that we have to participate in certain kind of extracurriculars and we can basically make a living out of just interviewing people that we admire and, and learning from ideas and writing. And, and I think that that previously wasn't existent in a place like this. So, so this is truly, truly profound. Well, that concludes this episode of Policy Punchline with Ms. Julius, who is the co-founder and co-chairman of Canyon Partners. Uh, one of the world's largest and best performing hedge funds. Uh, it used to be headquartered in LA and now they just moved to Dallas, Texas, very exciting times. And, uh, and, and at the end, I also, not just as the usual disclaimer at the end, uh, thanking our sponsors, but uh, I do really wanna thank the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance for sponsoring Policy Punchline over the years, being so supportive, uh, the center staff, uh, the center director and everybody. Uh, and I'm really glad that everything has come together at the end. So thank you so much for listening today. You may follow us on policypunchline.com, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, any of the preferred podcasting platforms you may have. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.